inspiration dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a Jesus-y podcast about race from the perspective of a black girl, an Asian guy, and a white guy too. Um, and also... <laughs> Uh, for today. Our favorite Egyptian American is here. We mentioned him a few episodes ago. Pastor Johnny Rashid. All right. Yay. I'm glad to be here, but you have to edit out pastor as a title. We just, cause I'll, and then I'll have to call you Pastor Bethany, just so we're back to, e- back to the uh, even, you know, playing field. <laughs> well, I think it makes sense because we talk about how we're on the circle mobilizing team. Oh, but you could say one of my pastors, Johnny. Okay. That's how I, that's how I want to be said. Um, you can call me Deacon. Don't re-edit that. Can I call you I'm leaving. The, I'm leaving this whole conversation. <laughs> okay, that's good. Deacon uh, Eden. Brother Deacon. So Johnny, what um, what what do you I, what do you call yourself ethnically or racially? Often I'll say I'm an Arab American, but sometimes I'll say I'm Egyptian if um, that sort of specificity is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Where do you find that helpful? Well, in the Middle East, there is there there isn't a, a largely Arab identity, um, because culturally speaking, from Morocco all the way to Iraq, there's just a huge um, kind of cornucopia mm-hmm. of cultures that exist, yeah. and even dialects of Arabic. And so, what connects these people um, is is rather tenuous because they are so disparate. But the the Egyptian um, culture has specifics that um, I personally identify with that makes makes it easier for me to call me call myself Egyptian. Um, like on my Twitter, it says Egyptian; it doesn't say Arab. Yeah. I specifically call myself Asian American in order to identify with other Asians as opposed to what my parents do, which is call themselves Taiwanese American. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Sometimes I'll do that with my with other Arabs, mm-hmm. um, especially if they're first-generation immigrants, although I feel like I have a lot in common with other first-generation immigrants, um, especially first-generation overseas immigrants. And so, Andrew, you and I have a lot in common based on our experience growing up in the United States with immigrant parents, especially both of us coming from, like, Eastern honor-shame-style cultures. Mm-hmm. And so, I like the sense of expanding um, Arab to include other Arabs, but I would even go further and say, yeah, other Asians, too. Because we, we think of ourselves as the Asian group. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Uh, so we're not even past the introductions yet. But, uh, <laughs> we said all that to say that we have an Egyptian yeah. person here as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to add yes. us in the mix. Uh, and, and Johnny, what are the pronouns you want us to use? He, him. All right. I'm Andrew. Uh, also he, him pronouns. Uh, as I said, I am Asian. And I'm Bethany. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm a black girl. I'm Chris. He, him. And I'm white. So we'd like to start the episode by addressing some things that we want to correct or things that we wish we had said in previous episodes. I want to start off by saying that I misread the intro that Bethany wrote for me last uh, episode and said, <laughs> black guy. Uh, Bethany identifies as a black girl. So that was my mistake. <laughs> I was just reading real fast. And I actually have a few different Correction. So the easiest one is at the beginning of the podcast, I referred to a Tatiana Jefferson as a Tatiana Jefferson. And then I suddenly called her a Tatiana Jones. I don't know where that came from. Probably because it sounds like Indiana Jones. Huh. I just figured that out. Um, 
So we really missed the opportunity when I said that oftentimes when um, black people come together and create their own society, that white people just kill us. And the one that stands out most in my mind is um, Black Wall Street, also known as um, Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, It was a free society. A bunch of black folks that were freed um, from slavery moved to Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and had this really affluent society, and they had these really affluent businesses. Um, And then white folks became, the story is that white folks became jealous of all of the money that they were making and all of the success that they were, that they had. Um, And they accused one of the citizens of committing some sort of crime um, and then raided Tulsa, this area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and killed, I think the number is really low, like they say something like 100 um, black folks in that area. But lots of people from that area say that it was much closer to about a thousand, well over a thousand. In any case, there's no longer a black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. No, but I have been to Tulsa. Um, I visited one of my dear friends and Soror's, Devon. She listens to the podcast. So, hey, Soror. And when I went to visit her in Tulsa, um, I got to see the remains of Greenwood, Tulsa. It was kind of fortuitous that we brought that up on the same (laughs) weekend that HBO released the new Watchmen show, which, as I said earlier, I I don't stand for anybody until they're dead. So I don't know how good this show is going to end up being. It's only (laughs) episode three right now. I'm dead for you to... Someone kill me right now, just so so we can back me. I'm just saying... Well, Johnny, I just don't disappoint him. Right. (laughs) But anyway, so far the episode, the, the show has been a really interesting exploration of white supremacy and the police and the history of white supremacy in this country. But the very first episode of this new HBO show opens with the dramatization of um, the Black Wall Street massacre. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And after that... Wait, you didn't know that before you... I've never... I've never heard of The Watchmen. Okay. It's, uh, it's well. I have heard of the Watchmen. Is it that Marvel comic, or it's is it actually something a, different? It's a it's a DC comic that was published in the eighties. It's That's like a right. really popular comic book series. Um, but the new show is is kind of a continuation off of the comic book. Okay, that, addressing different themes. But the first scene is about uh, the Black Wall Street massacre in Tulsa, and then the rest of the show takes place in in Tulsa in an alternate reality. Wow. Um, but. After the episode came out, there were all these think pieces about whether it's appropriate to put to kind of put that into this kind of comic book property, um, which I totally understand those concerns. At the same time, so few people know about this thing that happened in American history. I just feel like that this show would begin with with this is is significant. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I didn't find. I didn't find out about Black Wall Street until I went to a black college. This is totally something that you don't just learn about in school. So I think whatever way that it is conveyed to people is really important. Yeah. And then my last correction, we referred to an article in which um, a lawyer in Philadelphia was talking about how more black folks need to um, vote. And I couldn't think of the attorney's name. He's a really fabulous civil rights attorney in Philadelphia. I admire the work that he's doing. Um, his name is Michael Cord. I just didn't agree with that article. Okay. All right. So a few episodes ago, uh, during the Minnesota, I think, we were talking about police response um, and why calling the police is kind of a fraught thing to do. And one of the things that we mentioned was 
the murder of Botham Jean. The Botham Jean story is that a police officer wandered into the wrong apartment and shot Botham Jean who was sitting there eating ice cream. She wandered into the apartment because she thought that it was her own. Right. Um, But in this instance, Amber Geiger, um, who was the police officer that shot and killed um, Botham John, parked on the fourth floor instead of on the third floor where her apartment was. um, And the door was left ajar. She claims that she thought that he was going to charge towards her. She thought it was an intruder. um, So she shot and ended up shooting and killing him. Mm -hmm. Um, But the coroner testified that he was obviously in a seated position and probably was standing up when he saw that somebody opened his... um, front door. Right. But I think the thing that we were thinking about on the day we recorded that Minnesota were the responses uh, to Brant John's response to Amber Geiger at the trial, where now I haven't actually, I didn't actually see any of the videos of this, so correct me if I'm wrong. He hugged her? Yeah. Yeah. He said that he wanted to hug her, and I believe he went ahead and did that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What I want to add to this, um, Brant John was both Botham's younger brother. He was 17 when Botham was killed. I think they call him Bo, and that's going to be easier for me. Um, But he was 17 when Bo was killed. And thus, I think he's maybe 18 or 19 now. Um, So he's a young person processing a tremendous amount of trauma um, in a tremendous amount of spotlight that no person deserves to be in Mm -hmm. while grieving. And the way we process trauma, especially when we're adolescents and our brains are still developing, there's like a a second um, brain development stage between the ages of 12 and 24 can be really odd. So I add that to this conversation because I think that's a really important framework for understanding or trying to understand his actions. Say more about that. I think that that is a strange response to have to somebody that would kill your family member. Um, But I think when your brain is still developing, when you have all of this pressure on you, you may have strange responses to things that 10 years from now, Mm. when his brain is fully developed, he may regret. So you think he's possible that he'll regret forgiving her? I want I don't think it's I don't think he'll regret forgiving her. I think that he may regret or question um, hugging the murderer of his brother in the future. I guess. I also add all of that because when he went forward and hugged um, Amber Geiger, Uh there was so much harsh criticism of this kid on the internet. Right, and that's Mm -hmm. kind of what I wanted to concentrate on. Yeah. People criticized Brandt for hugging her. Right. Yes. And also for giving her. Because this Mm -hmm. is the response that I was seeing on my Facebook feed. The frustration that that Brandt would forgive Amber Geiger, it was irritation that people were applauding this act of forgiveness. They were fetishizing his forgiveness. Yeah. And also anger at the expectation that black people are always expected to forgive these acts Mm -hmm. and then they keep happening. Right. Mm -hmm. My frustration came from the grotesque um, critiques of him, of this kid, right? Like I saw multiple people call him an Uncle Tom. I saw multiple people. Oh, that's pretty aggressive. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. really aggressive. For a child that's grieving in front of all of America. I just saw really disgusting 
critiques of this action made by a kid in a moment. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. So wait, Johnny, what were you, you were what were you seeing on the Pastor Twitterverse? Is there like an alternate Don't, universe for pastors? Oh, there's Pastor Twitter. Nice. You actually posted one of the comments on your on your blog post. Yeah, I did write about this and I thought about it for yeah. a long time that the the main um, teaching for the pastor or the message to the pastors were was don't use Brant's forgiveness as an illustration in your sermon to make a point about forgiveness. Mm. This is a, a singular moment, which I don't know what happened or what's happening to Brant right. and why he decided to forgive his brother's killer, but. I do see beauty every time somebody decides to forgive. But the difference between seeing the beauty in that moment and fetishizing it or even yeah, expecting that's, it. And that's exactly... That's a huge distinction. Yeah, I don't think you you can... Um, you can't one, extrapolate from that moment no, and like and like put it over the whole issue. No, and just because he was able to forgive her... Yeah. ...does not accelerate anybody else's... Uh, right. Um, path towards forgiveness mm-hmm. because we all process these things in a different way. Right. And Brant's mo- your model for you. Un- Brant is yeah. not your model for universal forgiveness. No. The most honorable thing you could do, in my opinion, is take Brant as he, as he was and understand the act that he did as best as you can, because his mother responded differently too. Absolutely. Right. She Every, did. Everyone's going to respond differently to sin when it's committed against them. Right. Some people are able to let go and forgive more easily. And there's, a, there's numerous reasons for that. You know, when I forgive somebody, when there's no hope for reconciliation, which I do, and there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is about me letting go of what you did to me. Which right? I don't think Brent could have done within a year. I don't know. I I don't know. I'm I'm really not in a position to uh, judge Brant personally. And that's not a judgment. I just think if somebody murdered a family member, I I don't know. I shouldn't make that statement. What I'm really actually trying to say is this kid is not even 10 years removed from when your parents make you apologize and you have to hug somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I don't know. I I, I don't want to go too much into what his thought process is in his young mind. I mean, I feel like... I kind the, of think it's important, though. Really? The way, the way that he was like... Sounds like you're frustrated that he forgave her that easily. No, I'm not actually frustrated that he forgave her that easily. I'm really frustrated that black people criticize other black people publicly so quickly, especially when nobody is considering that this was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Think about yourself. So at you're saying years be gracious old. with him because he's a kid. Because he's a kid. Yeah. He's I can, a kid I can thrown into the spotlight. Yeah. We all think that this thing is weird. He may even think that this thing that he did was weird 10 years from now. Right. It's, but at it's the end of the damn day, life. he's. 18 years old. Yeah. I was a nutcase when I was 18 years old. I don't know. I wonder if writing this off as him being young is, is, is not respecting the choice that he made. That's interesting. That's kind of taking some of his agency away. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what was happening inside of him. Mm-hmm. And forgiveness is complicated, and we all have dozens of motives for the reasons we do everything, some of which we know about and some of which we don't. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I take the act as it is and I try to learn from it and, and ask what it's and, – and then I ask, what, what, what questions is it asking of me as a brown person in the United States? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for me? Mm-hmm. Because I don't feel um, 
pressure to forgive. And when I do forgive, it's an honest action on my part. It's not because I'm coerced into doing it. Well, doesn't Jesus want you to forgive, Johnny? Well, Jesus made a choice, too. That's, that's, that's why I'm empowered to make a choice, right? I'm a pastor, so I'm going to talk about this. But mm-hmm. right, and he, when he's in the garden and he's sweating blood, he's asking God, take this cup from me. I don't want to endure this trauma. Mm-hmm. For what? For these people that are betraying me and then killing me? But I'm going to make the choice to follow in your will. I'm going to do this. So I can make a choice, too. And uh, no power can make me do it. Now, that's hard. It takes a lot of uh, mm-hmm. security mm-hmm. to do that. But I feel that way, you know. And w- when I forgive, when there isn't reconciliation, that costs me something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, Emotionally, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, I'm, I'm giving up the fight. And I'm saying, I, 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 I forgive you. Now, what I respect about what Brant did is... He forgave her when you cannot satisfy the justice that you desire when a life is taken from you. Mm -hmm. You know, even killing Amber in like the death penalty or something like that Mm -hmm. doesn't satisfy, doesn't bring bring, uh, both them back. And so it's it's complicated. Can I ask, is, is possibly one way to read this then? In the moment is... Brant um, being satisfied with the justice of the sentence. Was he satisfied? And, and, like, and like that, and that helped. Like I don't know. Oh, don't are know. you asking? Could like, it? Could it have possibly been that he was satisfied with the sentence, and therefore he was then able to forgive? Is yeah. That what you mean? Yeah. And I don't like. I that's don't not know. my read on it. I'm just wondering if that's a possible read. I'm not sure. I don't know. We're getting stuck on something that we. Yeah, we sure are. (laughs) I sarcastically asked you if isn't that what Jesus wants you to do, right? Like our listeners can't see my face when I say it. Yeah, and even when I'm being sarcastic, I keep a straight face. Um, But I think my (laughs) okay. (laughs) Uh I think my my biggest frustration was the people that you were speaking to, white pastors, taking that that moment and using it as an example of um, how people should forgive and also the expectation from white people that we will forgive them, especially as POC Christians. Mm, mm-hmm. Also, shout out to all the different POCs in here. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, all right. Yeah, ow, ow. You know, it's amazing True that POC-ness. Uh, the dominators love forgiveness when it benefits them. Oh, absolutely. And so like you, if, if you as a person of color do the wrong thing, all of a sudden, we're talking about justice. Mm-hmm. We're saying he wasn't really an angel or mm-hmm. whatever, they, however they profile you. And so forgiveness doesn't cut the other way. No, mm-hmm. it never right? is. And then all of a sudden, the uh, calls for justice are out, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so I think that's what power can do to a situation like that, where you exploit the grace of Jesus when it benefits you, mm-hmm. when you need to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. But when you need to forgive someone else... Suddenly it disappears. Right. Yeah, it's completely right. out of the question. It's unfair. It's un. You know what? Right. What about justice? What about law and order? How does this all work? That's what I hear. Mm-hmm. 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 And I'm, I feel a little bit lost about what we were d- concluding, partially because a lot of it was about 
brand's neurology. (laughs) (laughs) I think where we're coming down is that we're all kind of generally frustrated Uh by the manipulation of Brent's forgiveness and how so many white Christians and probably black Christians too, um, any sort of Christian um, was using this as an example of like ultimate, ultimate forgiveness Mm -hmm. and like an example of how, all Christians should behave and really taking for granted the deep nature of Brent's actions yeah. as opposed to looking at it as the exception that it is. It, I, I don't think it's a standard. You know, forgiveness in the absence of justice costs something. Amber got a 10-year sentence that she's appealing, by the way. On one hand, that's twice the sentence that a, a woman usually gets for the same conviction. On the other hand, 10 years in prison doesn't come close to the death of somebody's child. Mm-hmm. And also the reverse racial yeah. procedure. Yeah, of course. My, my, my point is that is injustice and forgiveness in the absence of justice costs us something. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's why <clears throat> we have images of the cost of God's forgiveness of us represented um, in Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the, that's the, and we don't always talk about this, especially in Circle of Hope, because we sometimes think that sort of sacrificial language is a, is a little bit too on the nose, mm-hmm. or it feels feudalistic, or it feels violent, or it feels vengeful. Mm-hmm. But when, you, when, when, when you've experienced a wrong, a payment needs to be made to make it right, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that, that's the payment of the, of the cross, so to speak. It is not unlike a reparation. Well, specifically, I was really irritated by how the case centered around Amber Geiger. Like the narrative went from uh-huh. obtaining justice for Bo sure. to making sure we're not too mean to Amber. Mm. Like who, even wait, whose narrative? Who was saying stuff like this? So there was an interview the day after um, the verdict came down with one of the uh, jurors and she was a black woman. So I was like, "Okay, let me listen to this. And she said, well, I really don't think that um, both of them would want us to, you know, uh, ruin her life, too, or something to that effect. And they were like, so, you know, 10 years felt like enough. Like, 10 years felt like she seemed really sorry about it. She seemed like she was really, you know, upset about it. So 10 years felt like enough. And I was like, yeah, of course, anybody would be upset that they accidentally killed someone. But Mm -hmm. there does need, like Johnny's saying, there does need to be justice there. And it seemed like from Brant hugging her, which, again, I have my own ideology around that, um, there was a black police officer in the courtroom that was fixing her hair after she cried. Okay. Um, and then, you know, that juror saying that she felt like 10 years was enough, that she seemed to be sorry enough and that mm-hmm. 10 years would fit that. I hated that the sentence was around not causing too much harm to this white woman. Mm-hmm. It felt like that kind of damsel in distress, save a white woman type of narrative Mm -hmm. became the center of that case. Yeah. For people that are working with people that are moving through the criminal justice system, we would hope that everybody gets that kind of empathy. The problem is that they don't, they don't. 
they don't get that type of empathy. And it really is sour to see a white woman get something Mm -hmm. that none of our black participants and participatory defense gets. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. So, Johnny, there is a lot of abstraction in what you're saying right now, and I'm trying to tie it to something. I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So let's say you are a person who, and a, a tremendous wrong has been committed against you, such that in this life, it can never be repaired, like your brother has been murdered, and you make the choice to forgive. What is the place of Jesus's crucifixion in that? Well, on one hand, I forgive in that situation, or I move towards forgiveness, Uh because that's the only way I can let go of the wrong that was done against me, because no amount of justice or vengeance will solve that. Okay. That costs me something. Yes, it costs you something. I am conceding. Right. I'm saying this pain that was caused to me cannot go away. And so I'm doing my best to let it go. Right. Mm-hmm. And the and the going away that you were otherwise seeking is, is this idea of justice. Yes. But my movement towards forgiveness is modeled by Jesus because sin against an infinitely good God is infinitely wrong. And it requires an infinite sacrifice. This is what Anselmo of Canterbury argued, that you needed the God-man to be the infinite sacrifice that satisfied the infinite wrong. Okay. And, but rather than imagining God's son taking the sacrifice, imagine God himself or herself enduring the wrong for the sake of the world. That yes, something had to be made right. And, 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 and we see it all around us. There is something wrong in the world and it needs to be made right. Mm-hmm. This is God's big play for making it right, according to uh, one way to think about the cross. And when we think about the cross, we call it um, atonement theory. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of ways to do this. I'm uh, fond of Anselm's because God can't forgive through God's love and compassion alone. Justice needs to be paid, and justice happened on the cross. Point for us, Brant's forgiveness isn't just an act of compassion, because compassion alone doesn't forgive. A sacrifice is made, and that's where the justice happens. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Desmond Tutu said, forgiveness costs something. Yeah. So during Brandt the is Brandt is giving up his right to something. Yes. Well, okay. That doesn't seem very fair, though. It's not. Yeah. It's not. But uh-huh. that's the point that you're making. Yeah. I mean, that's that's okay. the issue. You're right. Forgiveness doesn't satisfy us in the same way that we imagine justice or vengeance yeah. doing so. Mm. We're conceding that. It's right. not going to feel the same. It's still going to hurt. It doesn't yeah. take it away. Even repentance and reconciliation doesn't mend the wound entirely. Mm -hmm. I'm just deciding not to live in my pain anymore. Yeah. And the way that I can do that is by letting it go. I can't do it. And I think that's what Brant did. Quite possibly, yeah. yeah. In the case of Brant, what we're thinking is that the justice he would otherwise be seeking is the return of his brother. Right. Which is an impossibility. Right. Okay. And I think that, yeah, that's it. It's not even the death of the cop. Yeah. Right. I I feel like as persons of color, we find ourselves frequently in situations where it is difficult for the wrong to be repaired, or we find ourselves in situations where the aggressor or the person who's sinning against us 
frequently doesn't even understand how they could have how they sinned against us,、mm-hmm. or maybe isn't even at a point where they have the capacity to understand、mm-hmm. how they could have wronged us. I so I I want to kind of move to kind of personalize this discussion that we're talking about by kind of dealing with this question of what does forgiveness look like in that scenario?、Mm-hmm. Well, well, for me,、uh-huh. if I can if I can speak to this, yeah, <clears throat> I grew up in a white context. Sure, that's what we're talking about. Circle of hope. Um, it's predominantly white too. America is a white context. Now, I grew up with a lot of microaggressions done against me that I just thought were a fact of life.、Mm-hmm. I didn't know people didn't live this way. You know, I thought the shame I felt for my mother speaking in an accent at the mall was normal.、Mm. I thought my embarrassment about the strange food that I packed for lunch and the faces I got for it was normal. Like we ate peanut butter and jelly and pita bread because that's the kind of bread we had, and we thought that was normal. You know, I didn't think twice about it, <laughs> but they did, and they definitely told me that. And so there, microaggression, that that feeling different and weird because I'm made to feel that way by my white peers.、Mm-hmm. I thought that was normal, and so the trauma that I endured, even as a child, I normalized, and 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 I have a tremendous capacity now to endure it. But letting it go unconsciously because I don't realize it isn't okay is not forgiveness.、Mm-hmm. I had to get in touch with the pain that I actually experienced as a result of the racist microaggressions that I that were committed against me before I could even forgive. You can't forgive someone unless you know the extent of the pain that they、uh, that that you experienced as a result. Otherwise,、mm-hmm. you're just living in、um, unconsciousness.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you have to know the hurt and then let it go. You can't just suppress it. Suppressing your pain isn't forgiveness.、Hmm. How do you feel about letting things go so that you don't have to, to just to avoid discomfort? I think you tasted the discomfort enough,、uh-huh. and now you're letting it go. That's、okay. what I would say. I'm trying to be as gracious as I can with people. Yeah. As they're figuring out how to cope with their lives. You have two saved messages. Saved message. Hey, listeners. This is Chris Eden calling you from the heart of Philadelphia, Fifteenth and Market City Hall.、Um, just thanking you for listening to this. The first of a two-parter on forgiveness with our pastor Johnny Rashid.、Um, keep listening.、Um, let us know how, how you like it.、Um, you can leave us comments at your podcast app of choice if they have a place for comments, or you can email us. At circlemobilizing、um, at gmail dot com,、um, I'd like to thank Joe Mahoney for、um, opening up the recording space for us every week,、um, Jared Selby for our intro and outro music,、um, Luke Bartolomeo for his help getting our podcast out into the ether.、Um, thank you all for listening. Tune in.、Um, stay black, Little Mermaid. Saved message.
Hey, y'all. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, We had to split it into two parts because we got to yap in with Johnny. So I hope the first part was really cool for all of you. Um, I just wanted to come in and provide you with a little bit of an update. We had talked about Turn Up to Bail Out before. It's a festival that our team, Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter, hosts every year to benefit the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund and their holiday campaign to bail out children that are incarcerated in Philly in adult facilities. There's no children's facility. Children are incarcerated with adults. Um, And we were able to raise $8,000 last weekend, which is so amazing. And I'm so honored to be um, in community with so many amazing people that recognize the systemic Um, racism and systemic oppression that leads to incarceration of Black folks, but particularly Black children. Um, So super grateful for all of that. So much fun. All of the performances were amazing. Um, And I got to wear my Fashion Nova outfit. So, ow, ow. Anyways, if you want to donate, um, we're taking donations uh, as a team, Circle Mobilizing, until the end of the month. So you can donate on circleofhope.net backslash sharing and then select other uh, sharing. And then in the uh, comments, uh, write in turn up to bail out. And if you're in Philly, uh, Stina Pizzeria, located at 1705 Snyder Avenue. They're going to be fundraising for the Bell Fund this all month long as well. So get you some good eats and go to Stina and that money will go to us too. So anyways, hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll talk to you guys next week and stay black, little mermaids.